Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 56, Good Neighbors, where we'll be taking you back to SeaWorld in its early days as a friendly neighborhood park to Disney. But before we do that, sitting in with me as always in these episodes is uh, Mr. JT Kuzier coming into Ohio. How's it going tonight, JT? I am doing great. It's unseasonably warm winter mm-hmm. and um, currently virus-free in the state of Ohio, I believe, so far. But We've got a couple being tested here in New Hampshire. But, uh, uh-huh. but yes, unseasonably warm and uh, also very windy. Knocked my maple buckets down, even with bricks on them. You're what? Them over. The maple buckets. Oh, maple buckets. Yeah. <laughs> got it. Well, let's take a trip down south where they don't tap maple trees, but they might climb for coconuts. Uh, Mr. Howe Bowers, how are you doing tonight, sir? Aloha, everyone. Doing fine. Doing fine. How's the weather down now, there? The okay. weather is Yay. breezy today. Breezy. Breezy, but generally beautiful. This was this was a wonderful week to come to the Walt Disney World Resort if you happen to be traveling. It was just just gorgeous most days cool in the evenings and then just about 75 76 in the afternoon so very nice great day to open great time to open up the new mickey's runaway railway ride or whatever that is to the tune of like a four and a half hour line initially so yeah actually todd the uh the it looked like it looked like the initial signs when people walked in said 300 minutes and then as soon as you got to like 11 it was like an hour and 20 so that's amazing yeah, it was just the big Russian one. The cars yeah. were wider than I thought. I was expecting something not as... They looked like great movie ride width. They looked big, but I don't know. I was expecting, like, mine trained style, you know? Mm, yeah. We'll check it out on the next visit. And yeah. speaking of visits, just returning, actually, as of last week. Or last week or week before. I don't know. Lost track. Mr. Brian P. Miles. Greetings and salutations from Philadelphia. And... Yeah, it was just last week, but it seems like so long ago. Yeah, and we didn't even go with you. <laughs> no, 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 I was just there for the weekend. I went to, was in southern Florida and uh, the Bahamas for a few days to get rid of the winter, although we haven't had a particularly brutal winter here, uh, and then uh, made my way north for a few days in the Walt Disney World Resort, and uh, I'm hoping to get back before they they're closing uh spaceship earth for its refurb uh the day the day the day after memorial day so mm. uh I'm, I, I i wrote it this time with the idea that it might be my last time but i have a hunch i'll get back before the 27th of may to write it one more time
All right. Well, with that, uh, guys, let's do some comments and corrections. Last month, we took a trip back to the Disney MGM Studios. Um, I know we were busy this past month, so we didn't get a, another recording in there, but we do have some other ones coming up we'll talk about a little later. But uh, we had a couple uh, comments come in. Uh, first one is from Jake Nelson, and uh, he says he read somewhere that there was a hidden skeleton sculpted into Catastrophe Canyon. I only read this one one site, which was no longer available and was never able to see anything. Do you know if anything actually existed, or was I just chasing someone's imagination? So, how did you... I never heard of anything. I mean, do you have to look at a certain angle at a time of day and get the staff of Ra and everything? Or I, I want to say that I have read that same rumor somewhere. Hmm. And and uh, but I I don't if it was if it was something that was on there it was certainly not visible from the cars because I I've looked at that uh. thing a zillion times I, I think I would have noticed it but it was it was Jimmy Hoffa yeah <laughs> I finally found him <laughs> I I have this vague recollection that it was like a call out to the dinosaur embedded in Big Thunder Mountain so, oh yeah yeah so but I don't okay. know I never I cannot say that I have seen that. But okay. yeah, I think we'll have to do some deep research now. Find out, yeah. All right. Uh, so thanks, Jake, on that one. Another one from last month was uh, Ruben wrote to us. And actually, uh, Brian, I'll toss this one over to you in a second because uh, you responded to him. But he says uh, the listening to the episode reminded him and sparked a memory of his first trip. There was a really cool shop immediately to the left as you entered the studios. I had an autograph, memorabilia, uh, costumes, and all sorts of stuff. Um, do you know anything about this shop? I remember, but I know, Brian, why don't you tell everybody about what it was? It was Sid Quahanga's Curiosities, right? Yep. I think was the... Yeah, Curios and Curiosities. Yeah. Curios and Curiosities, and they sold entertainment industry memorabilia, much of which resides in a filing cabinet in Hal Bowers' uh, <laughs> Disney Archive, because he's told us in the past about how we would flip through there and buy production stills and things and copious amounts. That is true. That is very true. For very little money, like four bucks a still, something like that. It was it was a good deal. That's not bad. I remember going in there. It was 1989, and uh, Turner and Hooch had come out. And I hadn't seen the movie, but I was enamored by the fact that they were selling the watch that Tom Hanks wore in Turner and Hooch for $50, which I thought even the actual watch. No, it was the actual watch because they would sell props. And they had, you know, I mean, not a big hit movie, but, you know, it's got Tom Hanks DNA on it. So I guess that's cool. <laughs> 50 bucks. That's a, that's 50 bucks. No, it's and, not. And, you know, In a way, it has origins in Disneyland. Uh, in you know theme park history, because when Disneyland opened, they had a shop there where they would sell the original animation cells uh, from the animated classics like Bambi and things like that for like a quarter or something <laughs> like that. Like you just like they 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 regarded them as throwaways. That's amazing. And those those things didn't really become collectible until what the late seventies, early eighties, mm. when all those studio stores started to pop up right, and right. people started framing them and you know, they were just like just a throwaway. Right. Yeah, I re I remember going in there and they had um the hats, like the helmets, and then also the cestas from Tron. I think it would the cesta was and the frisbee, like the identity disc with the frisbee with the black everything with like the black tape on it that was used in the filming. And I want to say the most expensive item from there was like maybe two hundred and fifty dollars. 
and I continue to kick myself for not getting one of those props because 250 I mean, today, that would probably easily go into the thousands of dollars. So, yeah, it was funny. So you, you get props all the time, and then there were always, like, autographs up on the walls that uh, I, they, I think they procured from, like, some sort of autograph collecting type company. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, some of those items are still on the wall today inside there i walked in the on our last trip <laughs> and some of the items that used to be for sale they literally just left on the wall and took <laughs> screwed off the them in. tags yep <laughs> and they are now decorated. we should mention it it closed in like 2014 or mm. something like that and uh was converted to a place where you go in and make your fast pass plans for the day yep. using my magic plus that's where all the touch screens were and where you could go in and plan your fast passes for the day. It definitely was a neat little shop, almost a mu- museum, if you will. So very, very cool. Yeah, yeah. Cool. and you and unique. Yeah. So thanks, Ruben. Thanks for bringing that up. That's awesome, and hope we filled in uh, your memory. And you, yeah, you're not hallucinating. It really was there. So uh, last one, Hal. This is a. I'll pass over to you, or or you can say I'm sorry afterwards. But uh, <laughs> Joe Barlow wrote in and says, "Good morning. The Hardcastle McCormick car was not a Lamborghini, but was actually a Coyote X kit car based on a McLaren M6 GT. It was originally built on a VW Bug chassis and the engine out of a Porsche 914. So." Um, how I, we're, you and I, we're not gearheads, but I would have expected JT to, uh, you know, correct us there. I, I didn't see it. I was just listening, but yeah, when you look up this car, uh, yeah, it's definitely not a, a Lambo and it's, it's got clearly kit car look to it. It, it looks like a, a Frankenstein of a car. It's, it's aged badly i'd say but it's still cool i mean it's definitely unique you wouldn't see one driving down I, I, after joe barlow sent this to us it's like i had to look it up and actually the the car was kind of an integral part of the plot of mm. hardcastle and mccormick which i i did not watch for i saw sometimes but not very often so i will admit i was not as familiar with that as i should have been but apparently the guy is was like a stunt driver or something and he built the car mm. and then he had to escape from some bad guys and they ended up giving him the car to use as part of his you know assistance with the police department so interesting there uh, we go. so it was t- as as many good things were for some reason in the 1960s and then again in the 1980s television shows were obsessed about having like customized cars yes. attached to them so like in the 60s it was like the monkey mobile and on the monsters it's like their custom cars and then in the 80s it was like the 18 especially with the steve the channel like the yeah team van and night like, rider like, yeah, yeah exactly it was having and even uh, magnum pi always had his ferrari it wasn't specialized yeah. but he still had his ferrari and it but was yeah very, but it was, a lot of james bond-esque type stuff yeah it was a very key so. integral part of the mystique of of yep. the character and of the show it was like you thought you saw the car starskin hutch they had that oh yeah car, dukes of yeah, hazard so, yeah it's a thing. Yeah, Dick's a hazard. Exactly. So The star of the show. So, well, Joe and anybody else out there, how is available to travel to any Meekum uh, auto auction? If you'd like any of his uh, expertise <laughs> on kit cars or the like, you may go home with a winner. You may go home with a loser. We don't know, but he'll yeah. certainly provide entertainment nonetheless. Todd, I want to add add this to this whole thing. Um, you'd be appreciative of this. Now, I'm just this is just a quick internet search because this car sparked my my interest while I was listening to you guys. It says season two and season three cars was based Ooh. on a DMC DeLorean chassis. So it depends which car was at the backlot tour, which one we actually saw. But it, I'm not sure which one they had sitting there. 
more information. Well, thanks a lot, Joe. And uh, JT, I'm going to pass the rest of it over to you, the, the listener mailbag this month. All right. Well, first one is from Tom Potter. Tom says, throughout the 90s, my wife's family would take an annual week-long summer trip to Walt Disney World. During those years, whenever a new Disney resort opened up, they liked to stay there to check it out. Uh, my wife clearly remembers being at Coronado Springs opening weekend and the management calling all guests into the lobby outside to watch a ceremony where they buried a time capsule. At the time, they were told that they would be invited back on the 20th anniversary to watch them open it. We came back from staying at the newly renovated Coronado Springs, and during check-in, my wife asked about this. Uh, the cast member helping us had never heard of one, and they called a few cast members over, and nobody knew anything about it. Uh, they're going to check with some of the resort, uh, but never heard anything back. Was this common practice, and would you happen to know if this one was ever dug up? The first thing that pops into my mind is the the time capsule at uh, Nickelodeon oh, Studios right. at yeah. Universal they had there. That was that it had like the the slime <laughs> mm-hmm. flowing around it. Um, but time capsules are always a cool thing as a kid. I don't know why, because to me, like I always had this this thought of digging it up before <laughs> you're supposed to, like just you know, like getting it out and being like, wow, look at this great stuff. But I, I don't really know much about the resorts with time capsules. Have yeah. you guys heard anything? I have not. It's probably something we need to, to look into, but it certainly is interesting. I mean, you know, anytime any building is completed or, or anything, there's generally a good way to, uh, you know, acknowledge the, the event. Um, as a kid, I always thought opening a time capsule would be cool, and then I realized that there was nothing really cool inside except papers and newspapers and, you know, like what a dollar bill looked like 10 years ago. So, um so yeah, I don't know how, Brian. Any thought on this? Well, Coronado was 1997, so if they would have cracked it open, that would have been 2017, based on the uh, the 20 year thing. You said 20 years, right? Yeah, I believe so. So I I don't know if anybody saw it get opened or it could still be sitting there, or it could have been churned up with all the recent construction too. Who knows? But uh, if anybody knows anything about this. Uh, or can help us solve this mystery, please call one eight. No, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> unsolved mysteries. But uh, Tom, we'll let you know if we hear something about this. Um, we had a similar experience with the fish at uh, Yacht and Beach Club, and we got lots of responses back for that. So hopefully, this will be just yep. as uh, good, Tom. And there, just a quick search here. P- people say that apparently the the boardwalk chandelier uh, was designed for electric bulbs instead of candles. There was a glass ball filled with sand hanging from the middle, which was a time capsule to be opened in 2021. But it leaked sand, so the capsule was removed. All righty, here we go. Next up, uh, Ron wrote in, uh, speaking of our burials and digs, uh, Ron (laughs) says, Hi, guys. uh, Hey, have you ever heard stories during Magic Kingdom constructions of trucks sinking into the muck and them just leaving them? I work with a welder who's been uh, around the Orlando area since 1967. He tells me there's at least eight trucks he knows about that are buried in the park. They're almost sunk too deep to the, to bother to be recovered. Uh, it's the first time I heard this and thought it was funny. Have we heard of any uh, trucks being buried along with time capsules? The only thing that I know of and I have heard of is that there was a truck in the World Showcase Lagoon, and I think that's been... I don't know if it's been debunked or not, but it's that story has certainly been around for a while. 
Um, that was confirmed. That was actually confirmed on Twitter by a, a Disney and land engineer. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So that, that did actually happen. So, but it doesn't lend any credence to it being in, I mean, he says parks, you know, I, 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 I don't know where granted they didn't build it on the second floor, but I can't imagine getting too muddy and just like, Oh, well just put fantasy land right over the cement truck. <laughs> No, no I, I believe it's I believe that during at least the excavation of the Seven Seas Lagoon mm-hmm. that there were several trucks that were lost. In really? The so that that story does not surprise me at all. I, I would say I don't know about the quantity, mm-hmm. but I would say it's certainly highly likely to be true. Interesting. Well, maybe we should talk to that. Uh, talk to that welder. And uh, speaking yes. of things in Seven Seas Lagoon, did you guys see the latest thing that Disney yeah, sent down a Seven scuba Seas Lagoon, yeah. and retrieved a woman's phone? And sent it was back. it in Seven Seas Lagoon or was it? It was uh, at the yeah, it was right at the entrance to yeah near the oh, for right the ferry there. boat. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, well, maybe if we get our coins together, we can uh, you do a diving exposition to down to uh, the depths of uh, Seven Seas and find these trucks. So we'll get uh, Scuba Jim on it. He'll yeah. come with us. Yeah, we'll get Rob Ballard and it. maybe uh, you know James Cameron. will do a full thing with it. So get us the Nine Eyes camera with us. Now, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Next up, we have a message from John. This is a good one. He says, hey, gang, I got to start by saying he's devastated. And I was thinking, what did we do to John? (laughs) uh, He discovered our podcast as he was driving home from Walt Disney World late August 2019, and he's been binging on his daily commute. So basically, John's had full entertainment every day of his commute since August. Uh, As of yesterday, which he wrote to us recently here, uh, maybe a few weeks ago, he's officially caught up to our current episode, The Backlot Tour. Well, it was a great episode of Zaylor. I don't know how I'm going to manage waiting an entire month. I'm a lover of all things Epcot Center as I enjoyed my first trip in 1986 at age 11 and have been addicted ever since. Uh, He's been back quite a bit, but he did say on their last trip, December 2019, they're walking around. He's so excited to see all the original pavilion logos plastered all over the endless construction walls. He's really curious what we know about these logos. Who designed them? Was it one person or did each pavilion design their own logo? Did the sponsor have any input? He's just kind of curious all about these logos. So whatever you guys know, John would love to hear. That's Hal Bowers, paging Hal Bowers. <laughs> it's going to be some Nor- Norman Nouye love coming up. Well, Brian said it right there. There's a gentleman by the name of Norm, and I've heard a couple of different pronunciations. Inoue, Ayune. Um, he was, uh, before Disney, he was a graphic designer for um, GM. And he actually designed, is that called the Thunder Chicken that's on the front of the Trans Am? I've never heard it called that. Usually people refer to it as a Screaming Chicken. but uh, the, screaming, yeah. the Screaming Chicken, that's it. So he designed, he designed, among other things, the Screaming Chicken on the front of the very famous, you know, bird on the front of the Trans Am. Yep. And then uh, when Disney was looking for graphic designers, he quit his job at GM and went to work for Disney. And he designed the main Epcot logo as well as all of the logos for all of the different pavilions. And I, I say he's one of my favorite people that does stuff because those things are just incredibly classic. It, and we um, also saw it, I guess it was what, Epcot 35, like dozens and dozens of rejected uh, pavilion designs that he drew too. You know, like he did, yeah. whole, he did whole sets that they didn't use wow. that are also mind-blowing. 
so there was a lot of work. They were certainly not like, oh, this is the first the first thing and it was done. And and the other thing that blows me away is these were all done by hand with mechanical drawing tools. So, mm. um, you know, I sat down to try to reproduce them myself using, you know, modern software like Adobe Illustrator. And I noticed like this stuff isn't perfect. It doesn't line up. And it's because it was all done by not not that it's not imperfect it's just done using mechanical drawing tools and french curves and things so the way that it's accomplished is very different from today when you just basically draw a line and give it a thickness and it's just done it's like these were all penciled by hand and then colored in probably with india ink and then shot with stat cameras in order to make them bigger and smaller and um, they're really special because of the way that they're constructed and what's kind of interesting is even when they reused um, the old logos now They've actually all been redrawn because uh, putting those next to the new designed logos, it's like they would not match because of the differences in the thickness and the thins wow. in those lines. So the new ones have all been redone. I'm sorry, the old ones have all been redone now to match the new ones. So like the new Spaceship Earth one, is, it's a little bit different from the original Spaceship Earth. Still looks good, though. I'm glad to see him yep. back. Very happy to have those there, too. Thank you, John, for that. Um, Todd, I have one more here, and I thought yeah. this would be a good segue into um, what's going on with Horizons, if you'd like to talk about that next. Sure. Um, today was the day, we're recording on the day, um, the Behind the Edit video came out, and the little yep. featurette you made on that, and I wanted to share a tweet from Michael O'Donnell, which was very positive, and I'm not sure if you saw it. He said, the amount of work you put into this project is absolutely incredible, and I'm so excited to see the final result. I'd love to re-listen to the Horizons podcast episodes and ride alongside you all. Thank you for all that you do to keep the memories alive. So first off, I will say um, it would be a very good time to listen to all three parts of Horizons again before this next thing Todd's going to talk about. But um, yeah, something really big with Horizons here, right, Todd? Yeah, this is this is probably our one of our largest ever releases, especially more in the modern video era. Um, so we, we've mentioned in the past that how is you know, been able to provide us a lot of eight millimeter video as well as VHS video that he took, uh, recorded off televisions, etc. How had the, the smarts back in the late nineties to go into horizons, um, not only with a camcorder, but, uh, with a wide angle lens attached to that camcorder. And then on top of that, uh, he went in there with a number of microphones and all sorts of edits. And he even used telephone pickup suction cups to record the audio directly from the speakers from the magnetic resonance that, that they put out. So I don't know anybody else that has done this. And Howe's dream was to eventually do something with it. And the tape sat up in his attic or basement or wherever for 20-some years before the te technology caught up. Um, a funny story was that at Retro Magic, I had taken his you know, footage and I kind of just all put it together and we played it and it was, it was very nice and it looked good. We played it during lunch. Um, and we always planned to release it as a big release. And recently some, um, artificial intelligence software came out that is able to take older footage or footage that is not of higher, not high quality and apply some artificial intelligence via neural networks to it. And basically it's a fancy way of saying it knows how to make up lost information and clean up the video really, really well. Um, once I caught wind of this, uh, I started to use it. And I was like, wow, this is making it look better. And before you knew it, I went down the rabbit hole of re-editing everything and re-editing and cleaning up all the audio, putting in stereo soundtrack. 
And um, we're going to release it here in in uh, early March. In fact, the release date, probably by the time this podcast comes out, the release date will be on our website at retrowdw.com. Um, but you know, we we feel that this is probably the the cleanest, widest, um, and and best looking uh, attraction ride through of horizons that we're probably ever going to be able to get. Uh, so hats off to how for, for doing this 20 years ago, how your dream is going to come through, come true here. And, uh, I can't tell you how many hours I put into it. Cause I probably shouldn't say, uh, <laughs> it's been insane amount. Um, but yeah, a lot of steps. In fact, we even, I even went through and de fish eyed your lens to make things look flatter rather than round. I mean, we've, really throwing every, everything we can uh, into this. So, uh, yeah, so I don't know if you guys have watched it yet, but I, I know we're going to release it here in March. And uh, we also have a special edition coming out after that um, that we're going to tell people about a little little later uh, in March, which is really amazing, which I never thought we'd be able to do. So, how thank you very much for providing that. It's a, it's a big, big, big release for us. Well, Todd, thank you for all the work that you've done to make it new and incredible and like so much better looking than it ever would have been. I like, cause I said, if, if I would have, if I would have just put this on YouTube 20 years ago, it would have been just another video on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But what's, what Todd's done is really just, it is literally taken this to the next level. So I, I think everyone is going to be completely blown away yep. by the results. And, and that's on you, man. Thank you. Thank you. We, th- to give it people an idea of how far we went, uh, Jim Lemus, Scuba Jim, you know, he came to uh, Retro Magic. He's he, he was kind of our QA engineer on this, and he watched it countless times. And we actually started uh, to take words that were missing from Howe's recording from other recordings and edit them in. And then he was actually figuring out based on the ride speed and where how many frames I should move the audio in order to get it lip synced properly with the audio animatronics in some scenes. That's crazy. So the entire audio track majority actually matches the, the specifically the scenes where the, the boyfriend and girlfriend and the scoop and the scuba school are actually matching uh, what those audio animatronics were saying at that exact moment on the ride. Uh, and then what we did is we put all new stereo soundtrack from the master recordings behind it and then cleaned up the narration. So it is, it's pretty amazing. The, I guess the only downside is that the narration sounds so good. It's not as tinny as the old speakers. <laughs> <laughs> so well, to, to find that, make sure you're subscribed to us on YouTube yep. uh, and you'll get notifications if you do that right. And um, it'll also be on retrowdw.com. And but, we're planning the big event too for it. Yes. Did, did you talk about that? I did not. Talk about I, that? Yeah, I think, well, hopefully this should, this should come out right before it. So, we will let you go to retrowww.com is also our, our YouTube channel page. We are going to premiere this live. You're going to be able to talk with the four of us about a half hour before uh, we premiere it. And during the premiere, you'll be able to chat, ask some questions. And after that's over, we're going to announce something else very, very special that has to do with Horizons as well that you're not going to want to miss. So a lot of Horizons stuff. And... Uh, Brian's Brian's got something to add in too. What you got? I I would like to know if there's a, a wardrobe uh, budget um, <laughs> for for this live event. I'm gonna wear a red uh, LBVHS uh, golf shirt. I think there That's we go. Nice. There, there you we go. go. I'll put my Mesa Verde shirt on. I think that would be appropriate, right? <laughs> it's either that or we yeah, all put our be, suits it'll be back like on. Sitting in on a podcast, right? Like yeah. it'll be like actually seeing us on the screen and be able to talk to us and you know chat back and forth and stuff. So if you're ever interested in what the uh, 
the, the studios look like in each of our houses, you'll be able to see for the most part. Exactly. I'm like, I'm going to have, I'm going to have to clean up my room. Now. <laughs> no, 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 you've got it all blurred out in the back. So yeah, you can't tell what's what on the floor over there. But anyway, we hope to see a lot of you there. It's probably right now we are targeting the, the second or th- I'm sorry, the third or fourth week of March for that. Uh, but stay tuned to our Twitter and Facebook feeds for that. All right. And to uh, write us a letter, note, anything podcast at retrowdw.com for listener mail. All right. Well, it's time for this month's audio rewind. And uh, how you didn't do it again. This time you got a lot of people to write in rather than your other one. So you hit you hit, you hit a chord. We got a lot. So I'm, I'm, I'm back, baby. He's got it. He's got it. So without further ado, let's take a listen to last month's audio rewind. All right. Did you guys get it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was El Rio del Tiempo, which is... Boom. I I love that ride. That was such a great ride. Were there were there any wrong answers this time? Um, I don't believe so. I will see. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I think you did well. So that's good. We that's do good. have a winner this month who'll be receiving Marty Sklar's book from Brian, and his name is Jimmy Tucker. So Jimmy, congratulations right, Jimmy. to Jimmy. Yep. And uh, how you've got not only the next audio rewind, but you have the prize for this month too. Yes, Todd. We were blessed uh, by the wonderful author Christopher E. Smith. He gave us um, three of his newer books. Um, the Backstories and Magical Secrets of Walt Disney World's Volume 1 and 2. And also, a um, little late, but still good information, especially historical, because some of the stuff is gone. The Definitive Guide to Playing at Walt Disney World 2019. Um, these books are actually knockout. Um, the the Backstories and Magical Secrets one, these are really well researched. If you like our show, I can guarantee that you're going to like these books. And here's a chance to get them for free. But if you don't... Uh, go get them because they're actually really, really good. I've read through them and I was like, I, you know, a lot of times I'll read through the history books and I'm like, nope, that's wrong. Nope, that's wrong. And this time <laughs> I was like, yep, yep, nailed it. Didn't know that. Got it, got it. So yeah, so these are these are fan- a fantastic resource. But So we're going to give all three of those away to the person that can guess this. you think you know the answer to this month's audio rewind send your guesses to contest at retrowdw.com all correct entries will be entered into a random drawing for this month's prize please have all of your entries in by april 15th 2020 tax day don't forget All right. Well, it is time for this month's main topic. Uh, as we said at the beginning of the show, uh, Good Neighbors is the name of the show. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about SeaWorld, which was one of the Good Neighbor Policy or Good Neighbor Program uh, theme parks in the Orlando area that participated along with Walt Disney World in a way to kind of share the love between patrons. And, uh, you know, I remember SeaWorld pretty well. Uh, I went there in 1980 and, um, you know, we're going to talk about some of my photos. I've shared shared our video uh, we're going to put onto this, um, although it seems to be only about 10 minutes long, and 99.6% is uh, are the shows, so there's not a lot of walk-around things. But, 
you know, it was a it was a big deal back then when there were only when there was only one park. Um, but uh, we're gonna rewind way back to the early days, uh, way before, you know, my my time of going there in 1980, because it started way before that, and it's got its roots in other places. So, uh, Brian, you're gonna talk a little bit about the Good Neighbor program and uh, take us back to early days of SeaWorld, and I'm gonna go get a Hawaiian punch here while, while we're waiting. While, while we get started. You'll find out why that Hawaiian I punch is know. so important. Exactly. I remember having one, too. So, yeah, but, so uh, if, if you're amongst those folks who listen to every one of our podcasts, or at least episode 39, which was our episode on Hotel Plaza Boulevard, uh, we talked in that episode a bit about the Good Neighbor program. And uh, so that's where this story begins. When Walt Disney World opened, as you know, they had two hotels on property. Uh, they needed a whole lot more hotels to house all the guests that were coming from all over the, the country and the world. So they established this good neighbor program uh, where they identified and partnered with off-property hotels in addition to developing Hotel Plaza Boulevard and deemed those hotels good neighbor hotels. They extended this program to other attractions as well because you know, people were driving down for a week, and while the tourists or fans of today might revel in the opportunity to sit around the park for three or four or five days in the old days and stare at, uh, you know, the orange bird or whatever, uh, back in the day, after your second or third day, it was time to move on and see other things. And so uh, in the in the... Uh, neighborhoods around there, uh, Cypress Gardens, uh, I'll mention one, was the oldest of the attractions that was near Disney World, um, and that's opened in 1936 as a botanical garden. I've actually never been there, but I think both of you have, yes? Yeah, we went there in 1989, I believe, and spent a good day there. It was, it was really nice. They did the boat tour, water ski, they had one of those sky lifts, choo-choo uh, Choo Choo Barn or Choo Choo America model train layout was there, um, and how I'm sure you and the botanical gardens were beautiful. Yeah, I went. I went there at a very young age uh, because there were other, not many other things to do other than Walt Disney World. So <laughs> I went there and was bored out of my skull <laughs> uh, because it was mostly a botanical gardens when I went. Um, I recognized some of the buildings from a Sunday morning uh, religious singing program called Day of Discovery, which ran in Orlando mm -hmm. and also filmed at Cypress Gardens. So like, I but for the most part, it was for, for me, I, I probably enjoyed the water ski show, but <laughs> for, yeah. uh, you know, for a four or five year old at Cypress Gardens, it was just like, oh, kill me. And yeah, I, so um, today, today it's Legoland and it's wonderful yep. and there's still a little chunk of Cypress Gardens there but like it's that's a great park to go to so I just uh, checked I, it it was 86 that I was there so was that around the same time you went to or did you go prior oh no that was the seven oh, I went in the 70s okay because so. there is some pictures with some very you know plain rides on it by that point like a little boat yeah, ride yes. and things like so, that so it had it had started as a botanical garden and then in the 50s after Disneyland opened uh, everybody had a rush to add theme things. So the first thing there was the Southern Bells, uh, which I Hal actually explained to me a few years ago when I had slides of them. And I'm like, what are these things? And it's like, oh, that's Cypress Garden, the Southern Bells. They're kind of a big deal. And they were in these gigantic Southern, like Gone with the Wind style, colorful pastel dresses. Uh, 
Uh, and they did shows and meet and greets and things like that. And then they started adding um, some amusement rides. Uh, Kodak had an island in the sky viewing tower. Uh, you mentioned the boat rides. Esther Williams, the Hollywood swimming movie queen, actually filmed several specials there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it did operate until 2010 under various ownerships till it was bought by Merlin Entertainment and became Legoland, as Hal mentioned. Uh, other attractions nearby, just warranting a mention, are Bush Gardens in Tampa, which is still there. Circus World, which then became Boardwalk and Baseball, which eventually closed. And SeaWorld in 1973. And the Wet n Wild Water Park in 1977, which just closed a couple years ago to make way for Universal's new uh, water park, right? Did they put their no, water- hotels. Hotels, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Hotels. The, like Surfside and yeah. Seaside hotels are there now. Yeah. But our focus today is not going to be on any of those. It's going to be on SeaWorld. Uh, and I, I think we should probably start off by saying we tweeted a couple days ago that we were doing a SeaWorld episode, and man, we don't get this kind of reaction when we're doing, like, I know. Horizons. <laughs> like, pe- people were, like, wanted to talk about SeaWorld and show us their memorabilia and send us pictures of when they were at SeaWorld. Everybody's got great memories of SeaWorld, including us. I stepped away from the computer for a little bit, and I saw your post. I wow, look at Twitter. I was... Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. So great response. Yeah, so thank you, everybody. Uh, Hal and I are going to kind of tag team on this because he's, you know, I, I've, I've been into the history of it, and so is he. Uh, plus, Hal, Todd, and I have all visited it uh, in various incarnations over the years. So uh, a little bit of the background of the park. Uh, it, its roots are in 1961 in San Diego. Uh, they were looking for an attraction to draw people south from Disneyland. Uh, and San Diego was seeking proposals for a coastal attraction based around marine life. There were two proposals. One was for an ambitious uh, project called Sealand. Follow the theme here. (laughs) And one that was actually proposed by a business group of businessmen, which would eventually be called SeaWorld. So you had Sealand and what was eventually called SeaWorld, but that was not the original name, was it, Hal? No, it was surf and turf, right? (laughs) (laughs) Originally, they just kept calling it Marine Park in all of their uh, in all of their preliminary materials that they presented to the city. And the story is that the the Disneyland's head of PR, Ed Ettinger, kind of came down and and helped them. And I understand that Walt actually had like a little bit of relationship with the owners of SeaWorld. And there's some photos of Walt at SeaWorld, some publicity photos that are out there. He he sent them some planning and uh, PR people to help. I mean, they they sent folks down to help. So that, uh, so he was one that actually suggested the name SeaWorld instead of Marine Park. And uh, it's funny because, you know, they hadn't really used World, I think at that point for any Disney stuff. So I wonder if that in in turn ended up influencing the name Disney World (laughs) when when Florida came into play. So, uh, So it's important here in this point to set the stage you're 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 in 1961 there's no discovery channel there's no nova there's no jacques cousteau nobody knows who jacques cousteau is uh scuba was in its absolute infancy there were no underwater cameras so like the the sea is this like mystery thing in fact back at that time i remember in the 80s learning in science class that something like 95 percent of our oceans at that point had been completely unexplored we have Mm -hmm. no we had no idea 
what was in them. And, you know, obviously with the development of undersea submarines and cameras in the late 1980s, when they found the Titanic and then subsequent to that robots and all that. Now we know a whole lot more than we knew then, but in 1961, it was a blank slate. So even aquarium science was kind of not advanced. So if you went to a small local aquarium, what you mostly saw was local fish, fish from right around those waters that people knew about, uh, nothing from exotic parts of the world or even the other coast of America. And prior to that, what, what I mean, the only other one I can think of, what, the current Monterey Bay Aquarium was opened in 1984, but wasn't there one before? It was probably maybe one of the first true aquatic parks. There were some, there were some smaller ones mm. and some some cruder ones in California. There was Marine Land in Florida right. that opened prior to. Uh, right. So yeah, I mean there were and a the, couple. The of, Theater of the Seas in the in the Florida Keys and yeah and but but what, what I was to say most of those that were around were basically fish like small fish aquariums and then dolphin shows uh, because dolphins had been obviously in captivity over really hundreds of years. I mean, they, so uh, by that time they had developed the whole thing where you would train dolphins and they could put on shows and seals balancing uh, balls on their nose and stuff like that. But uh, in 1960, so the park opened with, with that stuff. And then in 1965, it did okay. But then they introduced Shamu, uh, the, the, the fourth uh, orca ever captured, and it was the second female. And uh, she died in 1971. But after six years of shows, subsequent whales have been named Shamu. And there are still Shamus in the parks today. They're just, you know, it's like an Italian family. Everybody's either Anthony or John. Uh, They're all yeah. Shamu. <laughs> it, it's, a stage, it's a stage name. Right, right. Uh, and, and Shamu has kind of become the park icon. Um, so... That, that's the basis of, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about SeaWorld in San Diego. It's still there. You can go still go visit it. Uh, they are ending their whale shows when the current crop of whales uh, dies out or retires. Uh, the first expansion of the SeaWorld brand was actually in Ohio in 1970. And that came to be because the company was looking to expand and they were searching for a location between Detroit and Pittsburgh hoping to attract the blue-collar families that heavily populated that corridor into taking summer vacations and weekend trips to a park that was in with dri within driving distance. Uh, so I'll, we'll stop here and ask uh, JT, did you get, ever get to SeaWorld Ohio? I did, and it was on a big lake, like... If if Geauga Lake was that was what it was called Geauga Lake, um, but Geauga Lake Park, which we just referred to the theme park as, oh, you're going to Geauga Lake. That was like a big amusement park, like a mini Cedar Point, and it was within 40 minutes of my house. So you could actually kind of, if you were crazy, you could do both in one day, or you know you'd hit one and you'd hit another, like you know later in the summer or something like that. Um, SeaWorld was big for, we always seemed to go, it was the, if you're in Northeast Ohio, it was a place for the corporate family picnic. So we would go like with my dad's work type things, or even Geauga Lake is, at times as well, which was just right across the lake there. But lots of fun there for sure. I, I've vague memories of it. It kind of, you know, faded out when I was in high school. And then from there, it sort of just disappeared in the 2000s. So. Now, you're not going to believe this, Brian, but I actually went to SeaWorld in Ohio in the 1970s when I was still living in Buffalo, New York. Oh, look at that. So, 
So I actually got to see I and I, when I went was going through my pictures, I'm like, at first I was confused. I'm like, wait a minute, I don't remember these things in Orlando. And then I realized, oh, that's right. We actually went to the Ohio one before we went to the Florida one. So we must have went in 71 or 72. And I do have photos from it. Uh, and it's the, the layout is, you know, as pretty remarkably close to what happened in San Diego and in Orlando. And the shows were nearly identical. In fact, they carried over the, the same shows were in all three parks. Yeah. Yeah. Most simultaneously. So that was one of my next notes to, to point out that. So let's get to Florida. And, and it, we, but yeah. but the layout and offerings at all three parks were pretty much the same. They, they just duplicated them. Um, so they had some success in Ohio. Disney World's opening and they're like, we, we got to get in on this Florida this Florida game. We know what we're doing. Got a couple of successful parks. So the the key in Orlando was the park is located on prime real estate. So anyone coming from the Orlando International Airport to Disney World would pass it where the Beeline Expressway intersects with I-4. And it's still the case today when you're coming from the airport by the car. I mean, you see the sign for SeaWorld before you see the sign for anything else. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, they gave the park, uh, you know, I said, well, we could talk first about how little was there actually when the park opened. <laughs> Why don't you do that, Hal? Yeah. So, so just to give you an idea of what the original kind of configuration was, it, if you look at uh, pictures, uh, it's, it's remarkably small. If you, if you see aerial photography. Uh, in illustrations, it looks huge, but in reality, it, it was kind of kind of tiny, but still enough to, to fill up your day with stuff. So your, your basics were, you know, there was an entrance pavilion, so parking lot, entrance pavilion. Uh, to the left of that, and I b believe the facility is still there, was kind of the main restaurant that you would go to. So burgers, chicken fish, that stuff. Uh, in, in front of you when you came in was basically a, a 150,000 gallon saltwater aquarium called World of the Sea. And you could just kind of walk in and see uh, like a coral reef environment. And, and that was, you know, that was a big deal. Um, to the left of that was a seal feeding pool. And it was literally just like cement <laughs> and nothing themed, not rocks. It was just literally just like slabs of cement that were kind of... Seals are very partial to brutalism. Yes, apparently so. And it was the whole deal where you could buy, you know, fish for a certain amount of money and then throw it to them and feed them. Um, the, the whale and dolphin stadium that was still there, like that was there kind of up in the left-hand corner. Um, next to that was a Japanese village. Uh, and then to the right of that was the, um, the seal and penguin stadium before they <laughs> introduced uh, the otters to it. Um, actually, this is funny. So their big draw apparently was a one-ton elephant seal named Google, of all things. I don't know. They predicted the future. Uh, and then um, they had uh, like a little tide pool that you could stick your hand in and feed stingrays and things. And then they had a, f a colored fountain show, <laughs> which we could talk about. Yeah. That's... Uh, and and then the Hawaiian Punch Village with you know a restaurant and a and a luau show and and that was really it. It was mostly outdoors, um, just a little bit indoors. Um, a good day um, certainly, but like not not a lot of stuff compared to what they have now. Yeah. So so what we'll do is we'll dive a little deeper into each of those things to kind of tell you something about them. 
But to build on what Hal's saying, all of the expansion of the park came in two places from that point. It was all outward. So, because you really had just one side of this large lake, which didn't even have a water ski show when it opened. Um, yeah. And, and so you had this large lake off to your right. And there's a whole bunch of stuff developed around the other side of the lake over the years, over the next 15 years. Uh, and then everything else was kind of behind along the barrier of the, the property around everything else that we're talking about outward. So it really did start at this little court. It would be like the Magic Kingdom opening with just the hub. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then you start adding the spokes. Uh, and that's really what they did here. Uh, over the years, as they were able to afford to expand the park, they expanded it. Um, so I, the way I'm going to kind of do this is walking in the park after it's gotten its sea legs for a few years. We'll talk about kind of walking around the park counterclockwise uh, to kind of give you a sense of what it would be like to go into the park that day and walk around and mention some of the stuff that was that was around there. We And we walk this direction so that we get to leave the Hawaiian Punch Village and the water ski shows for last because they're the best. Um, so you entered the park under a modest archway, which was there until the early 90s or mid 90s when they finally built that lighthouse that's there now. It was a really simple kind of structure you walked under that just said SeaWorld on it with uh, with different shades of blue. <clears throat> and I come we come across slides with people taking a picture of that entrance uh, probably every five or six months. Um, so you, you, you walked in uh, and after you passed the information booths and the restrooms and the phone booths, phone booths were important then, <laughs> straight ahead you would encounter the World of the Sea Aquarium, which is the coral uh, reef I think that Hal was talking about, right? Yeah, and uh, you know there were often um, flamingos in the kind of the pool outside. That's exactly right. The, the, oh, good. <laughs> the, 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 the flamingo habitat was in front of it, uh, so that was where you would kind of because you entered, I think, from the sides uh, into the aquarium. Yes, and and the area in the front was kind of the, but it really was at that time. It was like a cement pool <laughs> where, the, where the flamingos kind of wandered around, and over the years. They've developed better, like more natural settings for them. But uh, back then it was just a little pool of water, a little sad pool of water. Um, and so you'd pass, turn into the left, you would pass a restaurant and then find yourself between two areas. As Hal mentioned, the seal habitat was on the right. And I remember feeding seals when I was there in 1988. Uh, and uh, I remember feeding the, the, the rays, uh, and in my first visit and I think you'd pay like a dollar and they'd give you like five dead fish and in a little in a little like uh, what is a little hot dog boats you know those little uh, uh, red and white like picnic uh, containers oh yeah that, like they would get the, the french yeah. fries in or some yeah, little yeah, fork to yeah, put yeah. french fries yeah, yeah, yeah that's right and, you're totally right Brian that's it and they yeah. would hand you that and like because you go up to like a booth man can you imagine how terrible it was to work that booth all day like just to hand, <laughs> it's like Tom Nabby with the trout in Disneyland right <laughs> yeah just handing oh. out dead fish all day long 90 uh, degree day so, yeah so the seals were on your right and the stingray lagoon was on your left uh, and that's what you did. And so we should probably talk about feet. So the, the seals, you just kind of throw it and they, you know, they'd eat them. 
uh, on the left, the stingrays, the pool, and I, I guess it's still there. I have, I haven't been over to that side of the park in a while, but, uh, the stingrays were, I mean, I remember this so much cause my dad was feeding them. I was feeding them. And then they had, you know, and, and the way you would do it is you, you had to take the fish and then hold it in the water and let the stingrays swim over top of you because their <laughs> mouth is on the bottom and they like suck it up. Like it's like a, like a vacuum cleaner. Uh, sucking it up out of your hand. I mean, it's a very cool thing. Brian, I, I was looking through my album here, and there's a picture of the stingray tank, and I'm hanging over the edge. My grandmother is not doing the protective grandmother hold by holding the back of your shirt by like a half inch of material. Yeah. I, I could take a... I could go into the drink real easy. <laughs> it's, well, you know. It's interesting that, uh, yeah, you just climb right up there, put your arm over, and... Uh, there's also my grandfather looks like he's feeding birds too. I think did they, did they do they did like those uh, vending machines with seeds and feed and things. Yes, yes, there was a bird. You could put a quarter into those mm-hmm. like little red things, and yeah. uh, they would give you food to feed the the uh, what were we talking about? Oh, the like, flamingos. Yeah, and this one looks like other, some sort of white crane and, or something. You know, yes, yes. Yeah, there were there were there were bird feed dispensers. I found some pictures and slides of those actually. Ironically, they're better protected from me than the stingray. I could, I can't fall into the bird. <laughs> well, you're supposed to touch the stingray. I That's mean, true. I vividly recall touching the stingray. Oh yeah, I mean, there's no, no way that, uh, um, no way you couldn't in the way that this was designed. Right. But I'm, I'm both knees up. I'm leaning over, and uh, yeah, I, <laughs> maybe I went in. I don't know. The the thing that I always remember there was they always had like an attractive young lady kind of sitting in the middle of this fake coral thing with a microphone yes. that would talk. To people, and that was so unusual to me to see someone just placed in the middle of these rocks. I, I think she served two purposes. So one was, you know, she gave you a little bit of the education. She would tell you about stingrays and you know what they do, and but it was also to make sure you weren't like grabbing a stingray when you were when you were trying to feed it or anything, because you know you got to keep your eye on these kids. <laughs> uh, but the other thing I remember is outside the ring, uh, there were places to wash your hands afterwards. <laughs> Because <laughs> you were just picking up these dead fish and like your hands smelled terrible between holding the fish and then putting it in the water with all the stingrays. You know, there's got to be a story out there like some kid pocketed like, you know, a fish and carried it around <laughs> until they got back to the hotel, right? Oh. <laughs> so, so uh, beyond the stingrays, if you're, say you're in 1977, you're walking around the park and, you know, a few years in, everything's open. Uh, that area... There's there's a nautical themed uh, playground that would eventually be built there called Captain Kids uh, World. I actually have a picture of myself in 1988 with my brothers and sisters uh, standing outside of Captain Kids World. Nice. Uh, that opened in 1982. Um, and so uh, yeah, we have it's just a picture of like welcome to Captain Kids <laughs> Captain Kids World. Uh, I don't really remember at that. I, mean, I was 13 at the time. I don't think I was running around on the playground. But they did have. Uh, all right, let's set the stage now for the younger generation. Playgrounds in when we were young, it was a swing set. It was something that spun around in a circle, maybe a seesaw. Uh, you know, monkey bars. Uh, we had one playground near us that had a metal. It was like monkey bars, but they were in the shape of a rocket ship. That we could like climb up through the thing, and if you hit your head, which you always did, it was like it would give you a concussion. It was so like solid metal. <laughs> I realize every kid's playground now is 
wooden pirate ships and sand castles. Where's and, the imagination? Yeah, yeah. You know, so going to a place and finding this like pirate ship to play on, uh, that was like the coolest thing in the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You'd find a good playground as a kid. It was, uh, it was a lock. You had to do it. I was just at the edge of the age to where I would could could play on it and would want to play on it. And I remember when they built it, being like, "This is awesome." I actually have like a press release from it, Brian, of all things. So this has a pretty good description. So it was a fifty-five foot galleon. Uh, uh, it had the facility was two and a half acres. Uh, and um, they had one of these in Ohio and San Diego. Um, they said durability, simplicity, or safety are important features, but what matters to the participants is that they have fun. So it has things that kids like to do, like running, jumping, climbing, sliding and swinging, and water sports. Youngsters under 14 may climb over a moat to the main deck of the fun ship via cargo nets. And I remember <laughs> that's how you entered it. There was this cargo net coming down from the side. It said, adults and kids too big for the nets can use a stairway on the other side. Oh, a, row, nice. a row of water cannons are planted strategically on the bow, ready to fire at unsuspecting swashbugglers. So that was new, <laughs> being being able to get squirted by people or to be able to squirt people. Um, that was a new thing. Other play elements include 12 water muskets, six on each side of an obstacle course, hands over water, three rope ladders, which it really is over water. So if you fell in, you fell into the water, <laughs> which they would probably never do today. Um, a ball crawl, two plate chambers, overflowing with 100,000 multicolored balls. Oh, those were big. The happy bacteria pits, basically. Yep. Nice. Yep. So then um, across it was the lagoon we talked about. And uh, in 82, they built an arcade there. So I'm sure I dropped some quarters into Pac-Man and Space Invaders in the arcade. So that, that would have been the first arcade because they eventually built another one on the other side of the lake, which we'll ah. get to. So the area where Captain Kid's playground is, is called Dolphin Cove. Why is it called Dolphin Cove? Well, because it was next to an original attraction, the Whale and Dolphin Stadium, uh, home of the very first Shamu shows in Orlando. Hmm. The stadium is still there today. Uh, it's known as Dolphin Stadium, and it runs a show called Dolphin Days. Uh, and that's not just Dan Marino coming out and like waving to people. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a Dolphin show. Shamu Please moved to a bigger out. stadium in the late 1980s, which we'll get to. Um, in 1977 and through the 80s, the park actually ended here. Uh, but today, if you kept going, you would encounter the Manatee Rehabilitation Area, which opened in 1993 when manatees were all the rage. They were. And today, looping along the back of the park at that spot, you find the journey to Atlantis Water Coaster Ride that opened in 1998. Mm. Um, and so it's worth noting at this point that, you know, as Universal opened in 1990 and Disney responded by adding thrill attractions to compete with them. SeaWorld decided to start adding rides. Um, Journey to Atlantis was the first of five coasters that would eventually open at the park. Uh, but that's not what you would have found there in 1977 uh, or when the park opened. Uh, first, you would encounter in when the park opened the Japanese village. 
Can I can I break in with some of the Shamu show names because I just think they're ridiculously hilarious. Sure. So, uh, how did you did you see any of the Shamu shows back? Oh then? my God! I saw all the. Sh- we saw all the. Sh- what would have I've seen in 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 nineteen eighty? What was it? Because we got a we got a good five minutes of in nineteen eighty. You were watching this is Shamu. This is Shamu. Okay. Now let me tell you how. So you know Brian talked about how they didn't have Shamu, and then all of a sudden there was Shamu. Right. Yes. And. <laughs> I think the reason that Shamu got a bigger stadium is because when they first got their uh, orcas, they were relatively small. But then over the course of time, as they got bigger and bigger, because I want to say originally it was like, oh, our two ton star Shamu. And then eventually it was our four ton star Shamu. <laughs> so I, I think they built a bigger facility as as time went on to house the, the animals as they got older. But so this is just so cornball. And I, I think this gives you a really good indication of just in the 70s where everyone's head was at. So the first show in 71 to 74 was called Shamu Goes Hollywood. And I remember hey. they had like the big sunglasses that they would put on them. <laughs> and uh, there was always some gag where there someone was brushing his teeth. Uh, then in, then came Shamu for Mayor until '75. <laughs> and then because of the uh, you know the bicentennial fever, uh, it was Sham- Shamu the Yankee Doodle Whale from '75 to '77. Then came Shamu goes to college. Because apparently he was old enough. <laughs> He's going to go. Then, uh, then this is Shamu, and then from there it just got super, sh- even more Shamui. Shamu take a bow. Shamu celebration. Shamu's water symphony. Shamu's twenty fifth anniversary. Baby Shamu celebration. That gets, but that gives you an idea. And, and one of the things that I thought was fascinating about these stadiums, they were very plain. Like when you sat and watched where the show was, I mean, it was basically like three or four pools. Yeah. And, and, you know, there was some cement stuff connecting them in the background. And they would build very simple sets initially um, to whatever the theme was that kind of connected them all. But they were not, you know, super fancy. It looked like a wooden play set in this one. This is this is Shamu. And I, I had I just sent this link to you guys. You got to look at the 210 mark when Shamu does his famous run against the glass with the flipper up and just throws a wave of water over onto the people. Yes. Oh, so yeah. check the two. T- these people get absolutely oh, clobbered. I, I, absolutely it's my clobbered. favorite part of the show. They still do yeah. it. Do they, they do. Okay. Yeah. The side flipper. And then he uses his tail. And yeah, he just, whoosh. I mean, there's, there's, there's 150 gallons of water that, that, yeah. that go on these people. Right. And I mean, they're just drenched from, from, they got uh, the ponchos from, on. Well, now, but back then, now. like nobody had a poncho. Like you just said, like you know, Ken from Indiana was like, "Come on, honey, let's go sit down in the splash zone." <laughs> Front and, row seats. Yeah, yeah. Yep. You would get, you would be covered by this like forty degree like fish, fish water, piss smelling fish. water <laughs> all day long. They would also do the thing where they would bring uh, the unsuspecting person over to the, and the two whales would come up. And they would uh, tell her to feed them or touch their nose, and oh, then the yeah. thing would just flip the water. I just sent you guys a freeze frame from my video from yeah. that too, which is well, yeah. the big gag, which was used. I don't know if they still do this. I suppose they probably don't do this anymore. Uh, it's been years since I've been there, but th- they would always find an attractive woman in the audience and bring her over to a section, and then Shamu would come up out of the water with its tongue out and give her a little kiss on the cheek. And they would take a photo of that and then give that as a souvenir to the person that had their picture taken or did the kiss. But that was that was like the money shot in all the publicity photos. Back yes. Then. 
Yes. And in the TV commercials, when they eventually started advertising on TV, there was always the Shamu coming up and giving somebody a kiss. Yep. yep. So, yeah, the, the, the whale and dolphin shows were where it was at uh, until the whale got his own his own uh, stadium uh, in 1984. So, but we'll get to that. Uh, if you stepped next to the whale and dolphin stadium uh, in the early days, the first thing you would encounter is the Japanese village, which uh, I'm sure Howard visited on more than one occasion. Yes. Yes, I did. This is pretty self-explanatory. It, it was a copy of uh, things they had in the parks in San Diego and Ohio. Um, it the Japanese themed buildings, manicured gardens, uh, and then in uh, 1975, I guess they added the Deer Park, and so there is a place in Japan, a park in Japan, where the deer are very tame, and, and you can go to this park and bring food and. Uh, the deer walk right up to you and you can feed them. It's a big tourist attraction. It's a big thing in Japan. So uh, they were basing uh, what they did here on that. Uh, and so that was a feature here for a little while. Um, the Japanese theme building survived into the late 1980s. The deer, however, did not. Eventually, that area behind the building where the deer were became an alligator habitat, hmm. which I guess was an easy way to... You know, Florida was teeming with alligators. So let's just throw some back there where the deer used to be. Uh, and in the 1990s, the whole area was redeveloped and bulldozed and redeveloped into the roller coaster Kraken, which opened in 2000. So that's uh, what is where Kraken is now. Uh, that's yeah. And, bef and before that, it got turned into Penguin Encounter. Yes, Penguin Encounter, that's the next note. Continuing, okay. if you're in the back of the park, the next thing you would have found was the Penguin Encounter. Uh, well, the Penguin Exhibit then, which is now called the Penguin Encounter. And my recollection of this attraction, I know that, JT, you're going to want to pay attention to this. I'm listening. Because this was the attraction with a speed ramp. Go. Really? Yes. Which one, uh, the Penguin Encounter? The Penguin Encounter. So you would so walk. So it just rolled by. Right, exactly. The, you would walk yep. in on one side uh, on your own two two legs. And, they and then you would move through the building. But when you got to the, the money shot at the end, where you're looking out on this, like... I, one of the things I remember, because they were behind glass, and there was, yep. a, there was a, a pool in front of you. And it's not dissimilar to how it is now, but then there was like a, a leveled platform that kind of had like a wintry look to it. But I remember up in the corner like whatever like the freezer the thing that it would actually like feed snow at like not snow but oh, like that's right. it was like ice yeah. ice would yeah. be constantly like churning out of yeah. it into the habitat uh and so like i remember staring at that like well, that's and it was always as you can imagine ice cold in there so if you're coming in from the florida heat so in order for people not to just camp out there because you could sit and watch penguins all day they're yeah. they're really interesting the, the the viewing platform closest to the to the uh, to the tank had a, it was a speed ramp and you got on it and it just kind of it was like George Jetson it just kind of moved you across the thing uh, so that you wouldn't stay in one place and so that it could move you uh, out of out of the room uh, and keep that was the crowd going yeah yeah it was it was it's like uh, watching the it's like the crown jewels keep keep people moving past yeah. yeah. 
they, they did eventually add a viewing platform behind it yes. that you could stand, but initially it was you would go through the whole long line for like an hour or whatever, and then you would go whoop, right that was past it. the paint. That's exactly that was right. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one th- one thing I want to add about the Japanese gardens in the back. Um, one of the the features which I found, I think, was probably the highlight of it. Um, and Brian and I, you, you and I talked about a little of this when we went to Epcot the last time and walked through. Is uh, they had um, pearls that they would retrieve for for guests. So if if you go into the Japanese pavilion now at Epcot, you know you have the opportunity to buy a a clam with a pearl inside of it and they open it up and there's a little sir well they actually had um women divers in traditional japanese pearl diving outfits yes that would dive down wow you know 10 12 feet into this pool to retrieve the oysters that have been placed down there probably at the beginning of the day and they would bring them up uh to then be opened up in front of everybody and there was a ceremony with like gongs and drums or drums i believe that they would do when when someone came up uh and it's fascinating and, and i guess in california it was originally sponsored by the Murata pearl company and i don't know if that sponsorship came through with florida or if the, by that time it was just they're like oh this is so cool we just need to keep doing this but essentially it was it was the tourism thing of like which is still common in, in many tourist attractions of of uh, places where you get like a a, a freshwater pearl out of a out of a uh, an oyster to get strung and wear. So they do it in that's, that the Japanese pavilion, right? They just yeah, do it yeah. there. Mm-hmm. It's a big thing, big thing. It's and still they do is. the whole gong thing too. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's fascinating. So uh, the Penguin Encounter, the Friends of the Wild, and the Antarctic Market Restaurant were closed and demolished in January 2012, and replaced by a new attraction, Antarctica Empire of the Penguin. And that is a trackless dark ride that empties you into the new penguin habitat. Just dumps you right into it? <clears throat> it well, that's where the ride exits. But you oh, can okay. also <laughs> bypass the ride and go right into the penguin habitat. Uh, it is very, very neat. I mean, I, I love the penguin habitat now. I can, I can tell you one personal story. So uh, my girl, at the time, my girlfriend's brother was a tour guide at SeaWorld. And they had not yet constructed Penguin Encounter, but they had the penguins there uh staged basically while they were doing the construction so i i got to go on a backstage tour one time and uh man you have never smelled something as awful as a penguin habitat it was one of the most foul stenches i have ever encountered (laughs) in my life animals oh my gosh so be glad you're on the other side of the glass is all i'm saying it was really neat to be in there with them and you know and but Woo! Did you pick one up like I, a baby? I did not. Like under the armpits, not. you know. <laughs> I'm like, and then I tried to run off with it. <laughs> Actually, I think that did happen at one point. I think someone did try to make off with a penguin sometime before Penguin Encounter <laughs> was open. I think that was in the newspaper. What are they gonna do with it? What are you gonna do to I, Penguin? Come on, we're gonna fight with Batman. <laughs> so the next stop in the park is a perennial favorite. In 1977, in the early years, it was the Seal and Otter Stadium. Oh, yes. You know it today as the Sea Lion and Otter Stadium, as it's been since the late 1980s. And I tell you, anytime you're having a conversation with people about this park, inevitably you get to which Sea Lion and Otter shows they remember, because Mm. they're they're a hoot. 
Uh, they're very whimsical interactions between a sea lion, an otter, uh, walrus, and seals. Um, and so over the years, I saw it as Hotel Clyde and Seymour. Uh, I saw it as a haunted house. I remember at some point it was like a high school musical, like a Grease kind of a thing. Oh, and then yeah, just this year, I'm, I got to see the holiday theme show uh, where the, I think the walrus, there was like a, it's a, it's a school and somebody stole Santa's list, the naughty and nice list. And <laughs> the otters hiding it in places in the school and the walrus is looking for it. And there's just, a I'm looking at mine from, from 80. It's a medieval theme. And that the seal is, is, is doing these backflips off the, the tower into the water and the, the otter's a hoot. I mean, he just um, comes out holding on, holding onto a wine bottle and <laughs> gives so, it to so, the guy. So that one would have been the Flippered Fairy Tales show. Ah. Prior to that, we we know early on it was the Dingaling Brothers Circus. <laughs> um, Gosh. 1986 was Sea Lions of the Silver Screen. The Haunted House one must have been Spooky Kooky Castle. I remember that one very distinctly. What do you remember about it, How? I, well, the funny thing was, all of all of the shows, the sea lions and the seals and the otters basically did the same behaviors. And then they would just kind of remix it. It was like Taco Bell. It was the same ingredients, just in a different order. And they would just take the same behaviors, but kind of like redo it. So if you saw the show one time, not that it wasn't enjoyable, but like you would see the same thing kind of over and over again. Um, and I remember distinctly when it was sponsored by Coca-Cola. There would be this one time where something would happen, like the trainer would be pretending to drink Coca-Cola and like throw the red uh, or paper uh, glass down on the ground. And an otter would come out with like a little trash bucket on wheels and pick up the Coca-Cola glass and put it into the trash and then like go take it away. So, but those shows were hilarious. Clyde and Seymour were, those are some funny dudes. Yeah, I was just looking at mine. It's, it's pretty funny. I remember laughing and remember bringing the film home and telling everybody, quiet, 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 this is the funny part. Is the funny part. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> Well, they had and one the scene other- line is the daring one, right? And and then the other, yes. uh, Clyde, was the, the silly one. And at one point, you know, he's got to do the same thing that Seymour does. And he puts his hands over his face like he doesn't want to do it. And he gets hung up on the rope across and, you know, wah, wah, you know. Yeah. Prior to, and prior to Penguin Encounter, they also often had penguins that would kind of just walk through as, I, I ha- as a thing in the show. I have a recollection of that, too. At some point, penguins coming through and like marching through in, in unison. And it's funny you mentioned like the Coke bottle, because you're right. In the next show, it's he's hiding Santa's list. In the next show, he's hi- but it's the same basic movements of the animals, uh, just it, themed differently. Yeah, and one of the things they always they always used to emphasize during the show is that they didn't ever try to teach the animals something that they did not do anyways. They would just take natural behaviors that the animals already did and then just figure out how to turn use that in the context of the show. Yeah, so uh, it is still a terrific show. Um, I, I recommend it. Uh, if you get there, make sure that that is definitely on your touring list today, because apparently Clyde and Seymour have been a hoot uh, since 1973. You know. Yeah. And, and I'm going to ask you, since we're in the stadium, are you going to talk about the mime <laughs> now? I, we don't talk about mimes. <laughs> we just gesture about them. 
That's yes. This will be for the next five minutes. We'll just everyone per- imagine. So, so this is one of those things where uh, they brought him. I understand they they've been brought back. I didn't know that they went away, but now they're back again. This was something that actually took the the for at least SeaWorld. This like took SeaWorld by storm. And Todd, I guess you, I guess you probably went right before. They started doing this. The mimes but, took SeaWorld by storm. Yeah, yes. I, I don't. This is definitely not in my video. I do not recall so, any of this. So this is one of those things which is so specific, and it was incredibly popular. It was one of the most popular things that was probably there. So as part of the pre-show for the for the Seal and Honor show, um, there was a mime that that would walk through the audience, and as people were walking through and uh, taking their seats. The mime would basically make fun of the people as oh. they were walking into the stadium. So if you were seated up in the stadium, you know, you might, might see like some curmudgeonly old guy walk by and the mime would be right behind him, like sort of imitating what he was doing. Or if someone had like a camera out in a backpack, the mime might actually like pick up the camera and take a picture of himself and like put it back into the backpack without the person knowing. And if the person turned around, then he would like jump into the thing like he was directing them to find a seat. So the crowd was just uproaring with laughter during this entire time. And I actually managed to find the names of the first two mimes that worked there. Uh, and there was a, a lovely article about one of them. So the original SeaWorld mimes were Danny Burzlaff and Billy Shadlock. And Billy Shadlock actually went on uh, after SeaWorld to be Charlie Chaplin for Universal Studios Florida. Oh, and wow. then repeated the same thing in uh, Japan when that opened up and has done a variety of other characters. But uh, if you find, we were looking at videos of uh, that SeaWorld produced, I think in, in the mid eighties one day, Todd and Brian, and you were like, why is there a mime in here? It's like, <laughs> what? And like, it, he, it was huge. Well, they yeah. eventually I th- hired like five or six people. And, and the funny this. thing is after you now tell the story, I mean, I, I vividly remember Waiting in the, you know, for the shows to start as the, you know, they're walking around hawking popcorn and Shamu bars and things like that. And the mimes doing their thing and it being hilarious. So here I thought I hated mimes, but clearly uh, there's an exception for the SeaWorld mimes. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, when the park opened in 1973, if you left the Seal and Otter Stadium... And we're now working counterclockwise across the back of the park. You might think you would encounter the 400-foot sky tower, uh, which is there today. But that's not true. You would encounter the construction site for the (laughs) 400-foot sky tower because it was not ready on opening day. It opened later in uh, the summer of 1974. So they needed about an extra six months. If I didn't tell you, the park opened December 15th, 1973. So... Um, so that, that, that is there today. You can ride it and go up to the top and take a look at the circumference of the park in the 1980s, uh, beyond that, that area, there was a picnic area, uh, and that was eventually developed as the shark encounter, uh, the Nautilus theater, uh, after Anheuser-Busch bought the park in 1989, they then built the hospitality center where you could get free beer 
and see the Clydesdale horses. And I know we all have memories. SeaWorld had some really interesting rules compared to Disney when it opened up. So some of you may be wondering what was the admission price in, you know, 73, 74. So it started out as $4.75 admission for adults 13 and over. $2.75 for children from 4 to 12. And then under 4 was free. Um, they had a, the picnic area. You were welcome to bring your own food. Uh, picnic area tables were first come, first served. But you didn't have to buy their food. You were welcome to bring your own into the park. And uh, parking in the parking lot was free until uh, the HBJ days. So I actually passed that. I think it was probably about the 80s that they finally instituted a parking charge for there. So just some funny little things. Yeah. So so different than the world today. Uh, so Top, yeah. So uh, in the shark encounter, uh, you might have seen a photograph of Todd making possibly a fin motion <laughs> with his hand. Yeah, I, I, I think that's what I was doing. I tweeted it out. We got a, a couple of responses. Uh, somebody says maybe an early interbrand park crossover as these are not the fish you're looking for. Um, a bite motion. And uh, this uh, John says he remembers going to uh, going that going there when it opened. Um, and somebody also says I'm doing baby shark before baby shark was cool. So I don't know. I, I it must be a fin. I don't know why I'm, my hand is straight out. A couple of things. So this was post the movie Jaws, but prior to Jaws 3 in 3D. So, you know, not not to pun here, but like the United States was in a frenzy of excitement about sharks. It's like with when Jaws came out, like that really put sharks, you know, into the public consciousness. So um, the idea for, for Shark Encounter, although banal now, was incredibly radical at the time. Um, with the main feature being, you know, the, this brand new, like, large acrylic tube with a, with a speed, uh, speed walk that would kind of take you underneath sharks in their environment. Um, and that, was, that was radical. Um, and they did a... <clears throat> I remember you would walk into the building. They would have a pre-show. So there was a little uh, movie, sort of like a multimedia slideshow, kind of like Making Memories. Uh, with uh, music and narration telling you about sharks and, you know, how they didn't get cancer and, you know, the smell that they had and how they would, could use, um, you know, they could listen really well, you know, kind of like sonar to hear where their prey was. So they would get you all hyped up with these facts about sharks to, to excite you about, like, what they were capable of doing. And then at the end of the presentation... They would push a button, and the screens that you were looking at would slowly roll up, I believe, like, and reveal, like, the shark tank uh, in front of you and all the sharks going by. And it was incredibly super dramatic. And then you would shuffle off down into the, uh, into the, the place where you could go in the large acrylic tube underneath them. And I, I swear, like, every aquarium has these now. But at the time, it was absolutely groundbreaking um, and so cool, you know, for what, maybe 30 seconds on the length of the ramp. It's like you got to see the sharks. And then there was a little tiny exhibit either while you were waiting to go because you would kind of have to wind down from the upper floor to get down there, showing you just how thick the uh, the acrylic plastic was, like six or seven inches. And it would talk. there was a little plaque that talked about like, how much water it was holding back and stuff. So it was, it was very cool. 
But Before we talk about the hospitality center, it's probably worth now mentioning the uh, ownership changes in the park. So the original ownership group uh, owned it until 1977 and then uh, sold it to the school textbook manufacturer Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. Is that, did I say that right? That's how I, that that's, sounds right. that's how sounds I say good. it. I remember all my textbooks in elementary school having that HBJ logo in them because um, they, they, they were major school textbook providers. And they sold it in 1989 to the Anheuser-Busch Corporation, uh, which then introduced uh, a, a hospitality center, a brewery tour at uh, Busch Gardens in, uh, in Tampa. Uh, but at the, at the SeaWorld, they had a hospitality center where you could get a free sample of beer and where they house some of Budweiser's famous Clydesdale horses. Uh, and I just remember seeing them on my, they, they didn't own it when I was there in 88, but when I went back in 95, I just remember how cool that was. Like going back and the Clydesdales were there. And I think a couple of times a day, they trotted them out and did a little, you know, you know, march them around in a circle or something like that. And that that's my recollection. Yeah, I'll tell you something really weird about that synergy because they had also bought Boardwalk and Baseball, or bought SeaWorld and converted into Boardwalk and Baseball. Cir- at that Circus time. World. Yeah. Cir- yes. So there was uh, gift stands within the park where you could buy a baby seal, a little plush baby seal, and literally next to it were like little tiny baseball bats. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm kid. I kid you not. I kid you. Like not. Just bad is, product placement. <laughs> yeah, just not really smart putting those two things together. So the other big development of this area, uh, outside Shark Encounter and the Picnic Grove and everything that was built there, the Hospitality Center, uh, was the new stadium for Shamu. Uh, in 1984, they decided he needed a bigger stadium, as we mentioned, and uh, they built the stadium specifically for the killer whale shows uh, and the stadium had improved sound and lighting. It also enabled them to do nighttime shows uh, as the park became more popular and was keeping later hours uh, during the busy season. Uh, but one quick note here, uh, which was not a, a place I really remember spending a lot of time, but the area surrounding Shamu stadium was developed as Shamu's happy Harbor which was a kiddie amusement and games area. That's where they built the second arcade, Hal. Uh, and that area was actually redeveloped this past year as a Sesame Street-themed children's area since uh, SeaWorld and Sesame Place share common ownership now uh, for the theme parks. So uh, they've introduced the Sesame Street area into the San Diego SeaWorld Park as well. So remember... You know, as you move beyond this, you're you're on the borders of this lake. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that there was the whole side of the lake was was undeveloped, the the whole coast on the opposite side. Uh, today, you would find in that spot uh, the Wild Arctic attraction, which opened as Mission Bermuda Triangle in 1993 and was quickly rethemed, uh, less than a year and a half, I think, to Wild Arctic. Uh, motion simulator ride which survives today and it's also where you can see beluga whales in the beluga whale habitat there 
But uh, let's jump through this wilderness in 1977 around the lagoon towards the entrance. And the next thing you would encounter is the Atlantis Theater. And that is a stadium seating complex looking out on the lagoon, which hosted the daily water skiing shows. I I really have to tell you, since I'm putting us in 1977, the water skiing show you would see is the Super Friends water ski show. I I got a set of slides like two or three years ago. And I remember tweeting a series of SeaWorld slides saying, apparently Batgirl and Batman and I don't know, I forget Wonder Woman or somebody was in it are on water skis and Hal's like, oh, that's the Super Friends water ski show. It was, yeah, it was, that was special. All of, you know, all the the water ski shows there. Uh, Yeah, that one was called A Salute to Superheroes. Um, I I don't know how you describe it. They don't do the water ski shows anymore, do they? They do not. Uh, So I can can get to that. Um, Just just one thing Hal pointed out in the beginning was that they changed those shows every year or two. Uh, There was a new water ski show. And um, the Salute to Superheroes, uh, there was an Almost Anything Goes, which you said was a TV show with Regis Philbin and Ruth Buzzy. Yeah, it was like an audience participation like challenge show, kind of like Truth or Consequences. Okay. So, which I, I still have the theme song stuck in my head for whatever reason. I have many of the <laughs> SeaWorld like, ski show songs embedded in me for one reason or another but yeah i i remember that one the um the 80s the 81 and 83 one was redonkulous it was a hatfields and mccoys yeah and there was like a one at one point there's like this uh this pig big pink pig suit that she would want <laughs> this pig would like be on water skis it was hilarious and they had like weird you know like ski boats that looked like they had a bunch of like wooden you know Kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies, except on on boats instead of on things. It was amazing. Yes. Um, so the one I must have seen, since it's, you said it ran four years, right smack dab in the middle, was Ski Pirates. And I guess I have a vague recollection of that. And and sometime, you know, they, they did these. I know maybe it was the 95. I saw there was like, it was like a Miami Vice themed or something. Like they were fighting crime and there was like a bullet speedboat and... I think there was an explosion and they were like chasing bad guys. And so so That's yeah. Fancy. So, and they would like, I, the cool thing I remember was these guys, you know, and gals going, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, or whatever on these water skis. And then just jumping out of the water, right onto this, to the, to the beach to like perform their scenes, like in full, like I had never seen that before. Like, I, you know, I don't, we don't see a lot of water ski shows in Bluebell. Or Philadelphia, so <laughs> you know it was it was it was kind of neat, but uh, yeah, I I know you. Some people sent us some details about the about the superheroes ones because there were stuff that I did not remember that other people did. Because one of the uh, oddly fascinating things about that show is besides the water skis, they actually contracted with the then famous magician Harry Blackstone Jr. to come up with illusions that they integrated as part of the water ski show. So there were magic tricks involved in this thing too. So 
I guess there was like Robin being put in a bed of nails and it would collapse and like he would disappear. And there were all kinds of things where like people would disappear from one place and then reappear, you know, like 200 yards out, like out in the middle of the water someplace else. So it was, but it was full on DC comics, Superman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, all the big players, like I think 23, either 23 or 32 DC superheroes appeared in the show. So That's a lot. Mm. Quite something. But think of it in the context of it's like, it's those 70s costumes, <laughs> but even taken to like one lower level because they have to be waterproof. So it's, it was, you know, today you would look at him and think like, oh, that's super quaint and goofy. And But at the time, I'm, I'm sure at it was. At the time you're saying, hey, man, I got in for 475 This isn't bad, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, what's interesting, up here um, towards the end of the water ski show era, we actually had, which I thought was super cheesy, but it almost is a throwback. We had a Batman ski show up here. And the ski boat had almost looked like the Val Kilmer era Batmobile with the big okay. fin in the back, you know, that whole thing. Um, but the ski shows are always awesome. I love a good ski show. Yeah, they're super entertaining. So I mean, so they they do a lot of the stuff they would they do still today at uh, Cypress Gardens. So they would build a human pyramid. Mm-hmm. You know, there would be jumps. Often there'd be paragliders uh, attached to it. And for some reason, there was always uh, like a high diver from a platform that was integrated <laughs> as part of the Why show. Why not? <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, what the heck? We got some uh, so they uh, would do- Cypress Garden skis with our boat when we got it. They came with it. It's like branded oh, nice. Cypress Gardens. They're always uh-huh. they're out there. Uh, yeah, the high diver, they always do the thing where they like light up the circle of water on fire where he's going to jump in. And then the person jumps into the circle of fire mm-hmm. just to make it m- even more impressive. But one yeah. of the big news stories up here, this was in, I looked this up before the show, 96, we had a... Ohio Sea World ski show accident. The towards the, and it shut down the ski shows nationwide. So it kind of applies. But the, um, long story short, I guess, you know these ski boats they are, they turn on a dime. I mean they're really really neat things to drive. They they handle like a like a sports car. And I guess what they would do is they'd whip a big like you know almost like a 180 right in front of the grandstand and throw some water up on them. Well. He didn't make the turn. It, it, it went up on the dock into the grandstand. I don't think anybody was, you know, overly hurt, but still, uh, they, they halted all shows for an investigation, and then they removed the grandstand splash. I guess. So, so that actually happened uh, mm-hmm. also in 1986 in Florida uh, during the ski oh, pirate did. show. One of their performers, uh, 24-year-old Tony Garrison, was killed. When his jet ski oh. slammed into one of the speedboats after he got a late start on his routine, because it mixed, you know, jet skis and speedboats, and you know, yeah, Timing yeah. So he he was about twenty seconds late, and instead of just not performing the piece, he tried to catch up, and uh, so that was one fatality there. Um, in the mid two thousands, after the water ski shows became more and more seasonal, instead of running all the time. SeaWorld eventually ended them and replaced it with Reflections, which is not a Disney vacation club or a, or a strip mall <laughs> massage parlor, but a light and fireworks show that ran until 2016 and replaced it with a seasonal electric ocean fireworks and dance party. Today, the complex is still there. It's called Bayside Stadium. 
and it's primarily where they host live musical acts during their concert series and festivals and other special events. And I'll tell you, Brian, when it was built, it was actually also built for that purpose. So that that isn't so much a repurpose, but a continuation of its original intention. So besides the ski shows, that was also the place where you could see, like, if you didn't go to the top of the World Supper Club at the Contemporary, it's like, this is where you can see the big name entertainment. They had like a 60 foot stage that they would bring out it float in the middle of the water where the main performers would go on. So they had people like Wayne Newton and Doc Severinsen, Dinah Shore, Ethel Merman, Helen Reddy, Tony Orlando, Arthur Fiedler, which I assume he had an orchestra out there with him. Chris Christopherson, Rita Coolidge, Perry Como, Art Linkletter, and Bob oh. Hope also performed. I at wonder the if he Theater. stayed in the Bob Hope suite at the Hotel Royal Plaza before he uh before he uh you know when he was playing at SeaWorld that 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 would be something yeah i, I <laughs> hope so but but apparently apparently they that thing was purposely built and wired up for like uh for television so when uh, much like disney did television specials through the 70s and 80s they also shot a variety of television specials usually musical variety shows uh, at SeaWorld as well as, as part of the publicity for that park. Fantastic. So wh- we're, we're now coming back to the front of the park. If you remember, we were walking in sometime in the mid to late 70s and heading counterclockwise. Uh, if we had gone to our right after entering the park and passing all of the, the information booths and restrooms and gift shops and stuff there, we would have ended up at the Hawaiian Punch Village. And that is... Uh, Right up Hal Bauer's wheel well. It's a Polynesian-themed oh, yeah. village that was sponsored by Hawaiian Punch. Uh, they hosted luau shows there. They sold Polynesian-themed food. And, of course, Hawaiian Punch. There was a, a whole Hawaiian Punch stand, special things. And the restaurant here was famous for hula pie. Now, I have the recipe here for hula pie. And as a diabetic... Let me say that uh, you should make my slice very small. So let me tell you what hula pie was. An Oreo cookie crust. You fill the crust with a half gallon of butter pecan ice cream. So take take the butter pecan out of, out of your freezer and fill the Oreo cookie crust with the entire contents of your half gallon. Oh my god! Then top it with 12 ounces of cold fudge at room temperature. Now there is no recipe for cold fudge. But you can surmise, figure it's something along the lines of chocolate ganache. So for those of you uh, in the Northeast who remember Carvel, which is still around, and Fudgy the Whale. Fudgy the Whale is covered with like a chocolate ganache type of icing. So I'm assuming that's what this was. You would spread the cold fudge over your ice cream pie. And then you would put it in the freezer for an hour to firm up. And then you would top it with Cool Whip. Or Cool Whip. And make a slice, and voila, that is the Hawaiian Punch Pavilion's hula pie. Holy cow. How would uh, you remember about the Hawaiian Punch Village? I know, I know you remember I the can, little musical act, the animatronic musical act. Yes. I was going to talk about that. That was, that was one of the, for me, that was one of the highlights. And I'll, I'll tell you, um, another thing, if you, if you go through thrift stores, you'll 
see two pieces of merchandise from uh, from the Hawaiian Punch Village that come very often. One is a hurricane-style glass with Shamu on the side that says SeaWorld. And you got that if you bought the Hawaiian Rum Cooler for $3.75, which was their own recipe featuring a blend of fruit juicy red Hawaiian punch, pineapple juice, uh, lime juice, and a generous serving of light Puerto Rican rum. A 22-ounce serving. You may keep the souvenir and we glass. we will definitely be serving so that at the next Retro WDW. <laughs> yeah. And having been made out of Hawaiian punch, I'm sure it was delicious. Uh, so that was one thing. And then the other thing that you'll see a lot of time are these uh, milk glass uh, coffee mugs that have a tiki on the front, uh, like a brown tiki, and then say SeaWorld underneath it. And I don't know what drink that came from, but both those pieces of merchandise are very plentiful out in the uh, the secondhand world on an eBay. So, um, But they both came from the Hawaiian Punch Village, so... Yeah, um, so there was a little animatronic display. Um, you know, I can't get a gauge on the size anymore, but I, I want to say it was probably about six yeah. feet around, maybe? With um, with uh, Punchy, the uh, Hawaiian Punch character, and Shamu. So it was basically like two of the Hawaiian Punch characters, and then uh, like... Sh- cartoon versions of Shamu and other characters like playing music and I don't know what song it played but there was some kind of song on a loop and basically they had ukuleles and drums and things and they were supposed to be playing the song that was there and you could walk up to this thing and see it yeah I just I just added the photo I just added the photo from my album there and uh yeah it's under like a little little nice tiki hut Shamu's uh rocking the guitar it looks like oh yeah there we go there we go. There's a walrus. There's a seal in the back left. Yeah, you got a walrus yeah. on base, maybe, or I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I There's see. There's a the big octopus. fish. Big fish. Yeah, is that an octopus? Yeah, octopus yeah. behind him. Yeah. Remember, guys. There's seven kinds of fruit in Hawaiian Punch, too. Are there? How about a nice Hawaiian punch? Sure. You taste seven kinds of fruit in Hawaiian Punch. Seven kinds of fruit in Hawaiian Punch. Hawaiian Punch is made with seven kinds of fruit for a one of a kind. Hawaiian punch fruit punch. And they're all delicious. delicious. That's all right. Them. Yeah. And uh, they also had a full luau show there. So um, you could do uh, like a dinner show luau uh, from the early days. Um, I believe they would also do. Uh, I'm trying to remember. In the mid 80s, I remember going, and I swear they did just one for the general public as well. That wasn't part of like a dinner thing. They would just come out and do, you know, the typical stuff where they pull someone from the audience and like do some dances with them and do some poi balls and stuff like that. But um, it was a good show, and uh, that um, that stayed as a tradition at SeaWorld, much like at Walt Disney World, uh, up until I want to say 2000 and. Oh, 14 or 15, they finally yeah. retired the so, Hawaiian so show. So the, the show was called Hawaiian Rhythms, and once they took the Hawaiian Punch sponsorship away, they just called the area Hawaiian Rhythms. Uh, so some of it survived. They did, the, they did the, the luau show. And then at some point in the 2000s, that entire area was redeveloped into what is today the waterfront. Uh, there is one other attraction just beyond this area when you walked in that we have to talk about. Uh, Hal mentioned it briefly at the beginning, 
and it was uh, between the Hawaiian Punch Village and that coral reef in between them was a theater. And this theater had a show inside that I watched. Fortunately, there is a guy, uh, Videos from George, I think it's called on YouTube. We will post the link with the show notes. But he, with an early video camera in 1981, taped the entire 16 minute or something like that uh, fountain <laughs> fantasy undersea fountain theater. Um, I, I can s never having set foot in it. I can tell you from watching the video exactly what it smelled like because, you, because you walked in <laughs> and it's this, you know, picture the best, most elaborate mall fountain ever behind a curtain that comes up and it was basically like the Bellagio fountains, but in, in an indoor setting. And so it was this controlled theater and you would go in and sit down and like a very studious voice would, you know, intone that, you know, prepare yourselves for the wonders of water or whatever. And then, you know, the, the curtain would go up like a stage curtain and you're looking out at this so it's water. It's like it's like world of color without the projections. And lacking projections, what they had was a screen behind it. So occasionally there would be some image, a photograph on the screen uh, on the back wall behind the fountains that synced with something that was going on. And But it was all instrumental and very hokey. Like, you know, the wonderful world of water. And... And uh, and these colored fountains would perform all kinds of, they, well, what fountains did back then, they got bigger, they got smaller, they went out all together and some other fountains would light up and go up. But this went on for like 17 minutes. And I know if it ran today, we would love it. But like most guests would be like after about minute four, they'd be like, all right, let's get out of here. They, they'd be opening the doors in the middle of the, their performance to walk out. Uh I, that attraction fascinates me to no end. I I have vague recollections of seeing that, and then I but I really remember the show that replaced that show uh, more than anything else, and that was uh, let me find it. That ran until 1983, Brian, believe it or not, and then it was replaced by a um, by a character show that was actually really well done and incredibly elaborate called. Um, the undersea fantasy. So there were, I think, four characters: uh, a turtle, Arthur C. Turtle, uh, an otter named Opie Otter, a girl named Lindy, and then a walrus named Sir I, Winston Walrus. I have and a picture recall, of me meeting Sir Winston Walrus at some point. Ah, there we go. So, to the best of my recollection, it's it starts with an opening where the girl has to do a report on uh, undersea life. And she kind of falls asleep in her bed. And when she wakes up, she's in this uh, very elaborate. Uh, it then turns to live action. And, and they built this huge, like, 60-foot wide stage, you know, where the fountains were. With all kinds of coral. And there were animatronic characters, like, in the coral. So, like, fish and things would pop up. Uh, and the costumes were really well done. It was the first time that I had ever seen synchronized mouths uh, with um, with live, you know, actor costumes. So when the characters sang, their mouths actually moved and went along with it. So, you know, there was a, a, 
a thing about two or three years ago when like Mickey talked for the first time and it was a big deal. It's like they they had that back then and it looked fantastic. And that was a really well received show. One other thing that was there next to the Hawaiian Punch Village for a time, if you visited the park in 1983, uh, there was an exhibit promoting the movie Jaws 3D, which was filmed at the park almost in its entirety. Uh, The water ski show we talked about plays a pretty central role in the plot. So it's worth watching for the historical look at the park before it got all jazzed up, if not for the cinematic value. I will tell you, Jaws 3D, which was not a box office success, ran nonstop on cable through most of the 80s. Like It was just one of those cheap movies that they could run, all the pay channels could run nonstop. And, uh, and so I, I, I mean, I've seen Jaws 3 probably 50 times and, uh, it's some of Lewis Gossett Jr.'s <laughs> finest work, but I remember the, the, the water skiing show and Jaws eats one of the, one of the girls in the water ski show. And I read, uh, the history on it. It's an interesting, like the 3d transfer in that I'd forget all the, the, the little nuances of it, but it's a very interesting 3d, uh issue they had making that movie and then it didn't show anywhere else and it came out bad and the the shark jaws like flying towards the 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 viewer i don't know it's very interesting if you look it up so that is by no means complete uh i i will say i visited the park for the first time in a while this past uh holiday season and uh they're really doing some great things there so we don't normally promote like things of today but if you've not been or haven't been for a long time, it is absolutely worth your time to get over there because there is still a lot of classic elements of the park that we've talked about that are still there. Uh, some of these displays haven't changed much at all, and then others uh, have changed dramatically. It's, it's, it's been greatly upgraded. As I said, it's a lot of coasters now. They've, in fact, they keep adding. I think they have the biggest coaster in, in Orlando is there, uh, which I know I rode a year or two ago. Um, Man- was it Manta? I think is the big one. I think Manta's the one that I rode. Yeah, I I finally remember the park. It's, it's fun to have the my home movies as well as the photos to take a trip back. But uh, thank you, Brian and Hal, for doing all that research. Uh, a lot of neat stuff. So if you do have uh, Sea World photos, you know we'd love to see them. You know, share them on Twitter and Facebook. Send them to us. Take a look. We'd love to share them out as well with this episode. So. If you do have them, send them over to us, and you can write to us at podcast at retrowdw.com. So, guys, I know it's the year of the film. JT, just a real quick update. We've released a bunch of new videos. You want to just maybe hit on four or five of them so people know what to go out there and find? Um, We're so close to hitting 5,000 subscribers, so if you haven't subscribed, hit us up. Um, That number's slowly growing. Uh, we did release a, it was a pretty big hit from the Disney Channel. It was a walk around all the resorts, I think, from 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a very short Innoventions commercial timed with the, uh, the, the demolition of the building just happening. Yeah. And uh, we have some DVC stuff from How from the oh, original How, yeah. DVC. How tell us a little bit bit about that. Your your walk around uh, old. You got Key you, West. you toured a three bedroom grand villa there, which is I mean, uh, then the comments were amazing because people said 
it doesn't look much different now. <laughs> <laughs> it's all those pastels. Yes. No, I, I, I had the ability, I was fortunate enough to stay with someone who was over there uh, and their family. So uh, it was brand new. So we went over and I just, you know, as, as was the thing, it's like a sh- shot. A lot of video of it because uh, it was new and cool. Once again, that, you, that you were the the futurologist because now, I mean, if you want to know what your hotel room is going to look like, there's 50 high def videos of walkthroughs of the rooms and how I was doing it and whenever that 92 or something like that, 93, it's just insane. It's got a tripod, the whole deal. Um, in style. Yes, and we do have a lot more coming though. Like we have something queued up roughly for at least once a week. The Big Horizons release is coming. There's a lot to be seen in the year of film, and we haven't even scratched the surface. So yeah, lots, lots to do. Uh, and also, JT, I didn't tell you this. I did experiment um, with the HD upscaling AI software for some of the Day at the Magic Kingdom and the Day at Epcot Center. So we Ooh. might have some. Interesting experimental uh, HD upscaled, uh, you know, versions of those. So let me let those out of the bag too. So very cool. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll be back hopefully next month. Uh, you know, we know there was a little bit of a, a break between episodes here as we're preparing uh, uh, Horizons Revisited, which will event again will be coming out later this month in March. And uh, a lot of us were traveling and whatnot, so it's hard to get all of us together. But we do have an interview coming up with somebody um, who did something in the past and something that's coming back. So stay tuned for that one. Another mini episode coming up. Uh, And we'll certainly figure out where to go next. Uh, We'll head back to the Walt Disney World Resort, the vacation kingdom of the world. And, uh, you know, we'll... I know we're how probably later in the year you think we'll do the walking tour of the studios, right? Probably mid-year. Mid-year, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, but yeah, we'll be back next month with something else. Um, how any T-shirt designs? Maybe uh, oh, you know, I got a good one for it. What about the the? Um, take a look at my video. The 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 look of the otter. I'm sorry, the Shamu folks with the stripy jumpers is fantastic. <laughs> we could have cotton jumper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cotton it's like jumpers. blue and red and yellow. Uh, maybe oh, you can do something the, with those uh, colors. The uh, the Shamu attendants. Yes, the um, the trainers. I, I was actually looking at some photos. And I was remarking to myself like how incredible their outfits. It were. looks like yeah. Superman ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, well, stay tuned. Hopefully, Hal, you'll have some other designs for us coming up. Uh, and there's also the uh, you did one for Backlot, right? Yeah, we did the the the. Mojave oil, Mojave, Mojave oil. So certainly get those at retrowdw.com forward slash support us. So with that, we thank all of our listeners uh, for taking a taking time out of your day to listen on your commute or whatnot. Uh, if you can give us a shout out on iTunes, give us a review over there. And as always, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, we'll see you next month. And with that, Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at retrowdw.com. 
On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT. On YouTube at Rubber City Motoring. And on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. Mm-hmm.